0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Gershon Schusterman was a young Chabad Shaliach an emissary in California running a school, when his wife tragically passed away, living behind 11 orphans. Decades later, he's written a book addressing topics of grief and loss from a traditional Jewish perspective called, Why God, Why, How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. And as we release this on the eve of the Passover holiday, of course, most people will be listening afterwards, but nonetheless, my mind goes to the essence of that holiday, which is about not only national, but also personal redemption. The ability to emerge from tragedy, from constriction, to a place of expansiveness and liberation. And Rabbi Shusterman's story is a profound example, not only of expressing that ethic in his own life, but of now sharing it with the world. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media, as you should know, spell that fully on Instagram and Facebook. Choose so you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Follow us or subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast platform. Please share this podcast with your friends and family. And now to our conversation with author of Why God Why? How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell, Longtime Chabad Chaliach, Rabbi Gershon Schusterman. We are here with Rabbi Gershon Schusterman, author of a newly released book called Why, God, Why? How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. Quite a provocative title. It's the root of a story of his own personal life and the great challenges that he has endured and uh, traversed. And we'll hear all about that. But first of all, how are you? Baruch Hashem. Thank God. I'm happy to be here with you this morning. I'm
1: zooming in from Southern California, where it's a beautiful early winter morning. The sun is shining. I had to close the shades so that uh, I don't get blacked out. But here we are. Great to be here.
0: And normally, I would be a little bit jealous uh, of Southern California at this time of year, but... We're recording here on Thanksgiving Day. We'll, I'm sure, release quite a bit after, but the recording's on Thanksgiving here on the East Coast, and it's actually quite beautiful today. So I don't have that uh, that typical envy that I might have this time of year for your part of the country. Um, but where in California are you in the Los Angeles area? Where in Southern California?
1: Los Angeles. I used to live in Long Beach. Oh, that may come up later, but I-, I live currently in Los
0: Angeles. Lived here since 1996. Fabulous. Okay. So 1996, I don't believe is the year you were born, although uh, I'm sure you are quite youthful, but uh, stretching back to your actual youth, your actual origins, where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was the beginning for you? Oh, I was born in a hospital. (laughs) Don't
1: laugh because a lot of my contemporaries were not. Uh, My parents got married in Russia. They were both uh, Russian Jews Russia, Ukraine, it it changed every few years. And my parents were in Kazakhstan during the war. They left. My father had a little home in Moscow. The home would be probably, he described it to me, the equivalent of a large Southern California garage. That was his home. But when the war started, they packed whatever they had, whatever they can carry, said goodbye to their home, never to see it again. And they went to travel a few weeks to get to Kazakhstan with in Samarkand. Uh, that was a place of refuge uh, for a lot of Jewish people. And there was a, his community. A lot of the people were there, so he was comfortable. And after the war, they got out of Russia, considering themselves deplaced Polish citizens so they can get out. They spent 11 months in a DP camp in Germany. And they were then going to, to America, but my mother was obviously and visually pregnant with me, and they wouldn't let her on uh, a ship to travel to New York, so she had to wait until I was born. So I was born in Paris, France, in 1947. I'm going to be a 39 next week and do the math. And um, But grew up in New York. If you know New York, Brownsville, East Flatbush, Crown Heights, we were upwardly mobile. And, <laughs> uh, and Crown Heights was is where we, as a Chabadnik, I would say, in Crown Heights, we reached the pinnacle. But uh, I, I'm told that there were other nice neighborhoods in New York as well. I went to the Lubavitcher Yeshiva system. I went through elementary school, high school, Masifta, um, Bes Medrash, I have Smicha, which I got in 1969. Uh, Why are we talking about me? And then I went to (laughs) 1971 and moved to Long Beach, California, where a colleague of mine had established a Jewish day school uh, two years before, and I was there for the third year. I became the co-director. And a few years later, he had to leave, and I became the director. And I ran a school for 18 years at the high point. We had 400 students, 80 staff members. That included bus drivers and uh, maintenance people and uh, 18 school buses. I'm proud of the 18 school buses. And life was good. Baruch Hashem, we were accomplishing. There are very few activities that one can do, even as a rabbi. Normal rabbis... And I'm a Chabad rabbi, so I am not a normal rabbi. Uh, In my early years, in the 70s, I drove the school bus. I changed the ballots on the fluorescent bulbs, on the fluorescent lights when, when they burnt out. I won't tell you some of the incidents when there was no maintenance man in the school and some accident happened in the room without the mezuzah, and there was no one to take care of it but myself. I locked the door and... Did what needed to be done to clean the place up. So that's the life of a Chabad rabbi. Everything in the service of the Lord. Anyway, what brings me to this podium, as it were, today is that in 1986, after being married to my wife for 18 years, and you know, traditional Jews believe strongly in. Family planning, and we planned to have a large family. And we were successful. And we had 11 children. The last were uh, twins, a boy and a girl. They should all live and be well. But when the twins were 16 months old, um, one, yes, a beautiful, sunny spring Sunday morning, 10 days before Passover, my wife, I went, drove into Los Angeles where I gave a class in the uh, seminary there for the older students. Uh, my wife got the kids ready to go to school because they were having a pre Passover program. And, you know, with 11 kids, and the Passover program was for K through four. We had a bunch of kids that fit into that group. And she also knew how to play piano. So she was accompanying. The events that went on in the school, she told one of her friends there. I'm really not feeling well. She went home. She called me on the phone in 1986. The word cell phone was not known, but I did. The early cell phones or the early portable phones existed. They were the you had to carry around an attaché case. But being the director of the school, I needed that. So she called me on my attaché case phone in my car as I was driving me back from L.A. It was very obvious that she was in serious distress. I said, I will come back as soon as possible. And, and I did. And I came home. I saw her. Didn't take much. We drafted our 12-year-old. Who was the oldest child home. He was taking charge of the kids. We we're going to the hospital. We went to the hospital. How old was your actual oldest child at the time? 14. We got to the hospital. She passed out just as we got to the hospital They got her into the hospital, into the emergency room right away. I sat there in the waiting room where they told me to stay. As a Chabad Chassid, a disciple of the Lubavitch Rebbe, I called New York and let the Rebbe know that we're going through a serious crisis and would he pray for my wife that this crisis have a positive outcome. Uh, Meanwhile, I I grabbed a Book of the Psalms, And That's what Jews do in distress. They talk to God through the chapters of the Psalms. And about almost an hour later, the doctor came out with a somber demeanor. That wasn't good. And he came over to me and said, those uh, fateful lines, we did everything we could, but your wife didn't make it. And, you know, there was no preparation for this. She wasn't ill. She didn't have any long-term illness or any short-term illness. The only time she spent in the hospital was in the maternity ward and in the recovery and getting you know, getting home in a few days. So it was a shock. I don't know if I said the word, why, God, why, which is the name of my book, but I certainly thought it. But I also thought at the same time, this is not happening to me. This is part of a plan. Nothing happens. God runs the world, including what's going on now. Why? I may never know. But now the challenge is that everything that I believe in and everything that I've preached as a rabbi, and I've visited many Shiva homes where people were grieving for a lost relative, a parent, a uh, a sibling, sometimes even a child. I knew what to say, uh, but when you have to try it on for size on yourself, it's an entirely different experience. And I realized what I was saying to people was the right things by the book because I didn't truly experience what they were experiencing when i was there to comfort them now i knew what they were what they had been going through and i needed to ask myself am i up for this challenge will i integrate it how will this affect me and that's in addition to the obvious questions i got 11 kids so somehow soon i'm going to have to go home and say that mommy is not coming home, and everything that comes along with that. Uh, I was running a school with 400 kids. I couldn't say, okay, guys, take a number. When, when Rabbi Shussman is in a good mood, he'll see you, and if not, just wait. I had to do what, what I needed to do to run this school. Thank God I had the uh, fortitude to be able to do that. And I had to put my own personal feelings or whatever I needed, I had to put it on hold because there were more pressing issues. So that's the long answer to your short question.
0: So until this time, you were, st- you were quite a young man. Had you ever encountered any existential challenges in your life or had, had everything kind of been smooth sailing until that point?
1: For myself personally, I had not I, I had a blessed life. I had a good life. I remember a classmate of mine who was a few months older than me, passed away at the age of nineteen, also suddenly. And that was the biggest shock for me on a personal level. But it was a friend. It was not me. And he was in in the seminary in Montreal passed away on Friday night we didn't hear about it till after the Sabbath was over so but that was it other than that I I had every reason to, to experience God as a providential good God uh, he took my parents out of Europe brought them to America my father worked hard he was a printer he had a printing company uh, my mother was a homemaker
0: things were good what had been your relationship until that time with Lubavitch Rebbe. Obviously, as a Chabad chassid, he was a figure that loomed large in your formation and identity. And of course, uh, you know, as, as someone who had gone out on shlichus, as somebody who's gone out to as sort of an ambassador and an emissary of Lubavitch Rebbe, I'm sure you felt a connection. But did you also have a, a, a personal connection to him? And, and were you able to lean on that at that time?
1: I would like to think so. You know, I had seen the Rebbe many times, uh, even as a little child. I remember at the age of four and five, I went with my father to get uh, lekach, honey cake. Uh, Arab Yom Kippur is the custom to get, ask uh, the rabbi for honey cake as a symbol of a blessing for a good year. Uh, I was there with my father. Usually people walked by and the Rebbe just, St- said to them, Shana Tova and Basuka, You should have a good and sweet, sweet year. I passed away with my father. My father gave him a piece of honey cake. He looks down at me and says, in Yiddish, "Was vilstow? What do you want?" I looked up and I said, "Cake." And he, he laughed and gave me a piece of honey cake. But, but that was the beginning. I, I've had a number of minor encounters with the Rebbe before my bar mitzvah. In those days, I was had the opportunity to to have a private audience with the Rebbe from the age of 13 until the age of 18 or 19. On your birthday? Just before the birthday. The first one was, was for my bar mitzvah, and I went in with my parents, and we had a a lot of interesting discussions during that those 15 minutes that we spent with the Rebbe, which is more than usual. What did he share with you at your bar mitzvah? Well, he asked me, "What I, if I'm going to be making a, grash? Will I be making a speech?" And I said, "Yeah, too." As it was custom in those days, one is to recite a Hasidic discourse, and one was to say a pilpul, to say a Talmudic discourse. And he he said, and he asked me, "What's the Talmudic discourse going to be about?" And I said, "Well, for those who are familiar with what Tfillin are now Tfillin. If somebody says." What are tefillin? Some people translate tefillin as phylacteries. You (laughs) You don't know what tefillin are. Neither do you know what phylacteries are, but that's what people do. Uh, Tefillin are the black leather boxes in which there are scrolls similar to the scroll that that is inside a mezuzah. They're different in different ways. uh, And we put them on every morning during prayer. We wrap the straps around our arm. And we put the tefillin on our head. And we carry, we, we do we wear those during prayer. For those who don't pray every day, let me just mention that tefillin is not part of prayer, which means tefillin is worn during prayer. But if one doesn't pray for whatever reason, putting on the tefillin, which could be a, a Entirely a five or seven or eight minute process, putting it on, reciting the Shema and taking it off, is an independent and separate mitzvah, and perhaps in some ways more significant than davening. We're not going to get into the scholarly views of that, but but they are two separate mitzvahs. Prayer and tefillin. However, the two boxes of the tefillin, are they one mitzvah or two? Now, some communities and two separate blessings are recited. One blessing for the hand or arm tzvillin and one blessing for the head tzvillin. But in other communities and in Chabad, we say one blessing for the arm tzvillin and that goes for both unless you interrupt it in the middle, which would indicate that. So we have here a question. Are they one mitzvah or are they two mitzvahs? That was the theme of my discourse so the rabbi asked, as any interested scholarly person would, what's the difference if it's one mitzvah or if it's two mitzvahs? I said, well, if it's one mitzvah, then if a person, heaven forbid, does not have an arm and he can't do the arm tefillin, you can't do a half a mitzvah. Therefore, he would not put on tefillin at all. But if they're two separate mitzvahs, um, then if you can't put on the arm tefillin, You still have to put on the head film. And that was my answer. Rebbe paused, looked at me quite seriously, and said, and what if somebody doesn't have a head? Now, I'm a 13-year-old. I wasn't even 13 yet. And the Rebbe is a serious person. And I I wasn't sure is he, I, I, I wouldn't say the Rebbe would be would be facetious because he is the Rebbe, but I had no other way of dealing with this. So I only responded, as can It can't be. It cannot happen. A person cannot exist without a head. Then he asked me the same question a second time. But what if one doesn't have a head? And I repeated the same thing again. And he persisted and asked me a third time. And at that point, I said, Firmly, as Ken design, it cannot happen that the Rebbe started smiling. He was testing me. He was testing me if I'll stick to the point or I will come up with something creative. But that, that was one. The Rebbe did have a great sense of humor, but he didn't usually play around with kids. But this was this was my, my uh, encounter with the Rebbe. Uh, he also told me then, as far as, reciting the Hasidic discourse, uh, he said, on the day of my bar mitzvah, I should go to the Ohel, to the resting place uh, where his saintly father-in-law, his predecessor, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, people came there then to pray, uh, as it is customary to pray, at the graveside of a tzaddik, of a righteous person. And today, after the Rebbe passed away, uh, who, and he's buried right next to his father-in-law. Uh, that is a fairly common thing that people go there to pray. But the Rabbi said, I should go there. He didn't mention praying, which which is the standard, as a special booklet that is read at the gravesite. I should recite the Mimer. I should recite the Hasidic discourse to the previous Rabbi, which was a great honor. It was during that period, uh, two or three other, uh, young men like myself were instructed to do so, which I did. And then every year after uh, after that, 14, 15, I, I went into the Rebbe, wrote a report where I'm up to, what my needs are, what problems I have. If, if I had any problems, the Rebbe would answer and uh, give me a bracha to have a, a good year physically uh, and most important in my learning and in my davening and spiritually. But also, in those days, the Rebbe had a public gathering on the major holidays and the major Hasidic anniversaries and on not every Shabbos, but on Shabbos Mavarchim, the Shabbos before the new month. And I was there. I was there. And we moved to Crown Heights. I was 11 years old. Every Shabbos after that, I wouldn't miss it for anything. I will not say that at the age of 11, I understood everything that the Rebbe said, but I understood parts of it. The Rebbe spoke in Yiddish, and I understood Yiddish. My parents, uh, you know, even in our school uh, in the yeshiva that I went to, then they translated everything into Yiddish. So I had to know Yiddish if I wanted to function. And the Rebbe spoke about interpretations of the Torah reading. Sometimes he delved into current events, and as I got older. I understood more and more. And what was beyond the academics of the Rebbe, the, the Rebbe spoke about real issues, and the Rebbe often spoke about bad things that have happened in the world, and the Rebbe often cried. The, the Rebbe, a grown man? I was a kid. I had stopped crying <laughs> probably at the age of 12. Uh, the Rabbi was a grown man. He was crying about why this tragedy happened, and when is Mashiach going to come? And needless to say, that left a deep impact on me. And if I had to sum up, the Rebbe was my rabbi, my teacher, but the Rebbe was my hero. Everybody needs a hero. I did know about Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Willie Mays and Ted Williams. I was aware of these things. That was the only sport that I had any knowledge of. But they were unworthy of being my heroes, a hero of someone who really knows what life is all about. And when something happened during the week, if there was, heaven forbid, a tragedy in Israel, a terrorist attack, which unfortunately happened much too often and even to this very day. And as a teenager, I said, I can't wrap my hands around this. How, How could this be? And I said, well, even though I don't understand, I have nothing to comment on. But the Rebbe will speak about it. And if he doesn't, at least he knows of it. And that's that's for me, that's enough for me. So he was my security growing up. And then when I went out on Schlieffus in 1971, we had issues. It was common. We'd asked for advice. He gave us advice. He counseled us. He criticized us how he had time. Uh, for the hundreds of shluchim that were then and how he had time for the thousands of shluchim later, I don't know. But and to this day, the the, the spirit of the Rebbe energizes me and hundreds of thousands of Hasidim. And we believe the Rebbe is looking down on us and on Claudius Row from his perch in heaven, looking out for us, praying for us, and helping us Encouraging us in our work.
0: So when this tragedy struck, did you, I imagine you reached back out to the Rebbe and told him what had happened, and did he communicate any advice or guidance or even just condolences? Like, what was the conversation at that point?
1: The Rebbe's secretary, to whom I spoke before, as I mentioned earlier, and to whom I spoke after the fact happened to also be my brother-in-law he worked in the rabbi's office rabbi klein rabbi benjamin klein if you knew him he didn't tell it to me then but he told me it. he told it to me some years later when he went into the rabbi and told them that my wife had passed away a look of anguish overcame the rabbi and he lifted his hands you know, as someone says, why? And he, he said, my, my brother-in-law demonstrated it. You know, why? He didn't say anything. With his, he didn't verbalize anything. And then he threw his hands down, almost in disgust. Why do these things happen? I'm putting my words to it, but that was it. And in some way, when I heard that, it was comforting to me. Now, the comfort was... I had a why without an answer. If the Rebbe has a why without an answer, all he can do is throw his hands down. I'm in good company. Subsequently, I wrote to the Rebbe, gave him a report, what's going on at home, what's going on in the Hebrew academy that I directed. And he gave us various pieces of advice. He encouraged me. And uh, that worked for me to a certain extent.
0: So what did you do? I mean, you're, you're at the hospital, and now you have to go home and tell your children that their mother passed away. And then, of course, practically speaking, you have to actually deal with raising this large brood, 11 children under the age of 14. How did you just functionally manage day to day?
1: That's why the name name, name, name of my book is It Hurt Like Hell. It was the most difficult period in my life. Uh, Fortunately, two things. Number one, I had built in a Jewish perspective, a religious perspective that God runs the world. This too is from God, though by God, I had no way of, comprehending what purpose is served by this. And, you know, now, 36 years later, I still don't have an answer for that. So I uh, forged ahead, but my character allowed me to do what I needed to do, Say, sink or swim time. And I certainly wasn't going to sink because too much was dependent on me. So I swam and actually neglected my own personal emotional needs as they were. I did realize a few months later that I need to talk this out with people who understood. I looked for books. I looked for books. Today, there's probably a half a dozen good Jewish books that deal with this complicated uh, subject. But in 1986 and 1987, those books didn't exist. I found a therapist, a woman who lost her husband and was raising two children. I needed to find someone who I believed could understand my what I'm going through. She lived in West L.A. She was actually retired, uh, but some of my friends who knew her got her out of retirement at least for one client. I would drive down every two weeks, spend an hour with her. And this went on for seven, eight, or nine months. And um, it was difficult. It was difficult. The kids, uh, I just think of the first Passover 10 days later. Passover is a day, the festival of freedom and joy. Well, that Passover had a dark cloud over it. But to my amazement, after Passover was over and the kids went back to school and they went back into their regular routine, I was shocked. How are they functioning? I wasn't usually home when they got up in the morning. My schedule changed. I took care of them, I fed them breakfast, I made sure I had to get in uh, other help. But even though to some extent the kids seemed normal, but too often they acted out in a way that I knew there's more going on. Eventually, uh, some of them went to therapy. <laughs> Once we tried to get the whole group together with a therapist, they recommended a professor of psychology at UCLA. We went down there, the whole kit and caboodle, 15 minutes into the session. The therapist resigned. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, such is life. What can I say? We kept going and the school kept going. I remarried about two years later. Ah. You know, when you get married, you have at least nine months of exclusivity with your new spouse. My wife, who lived in in Jerusalem, lived in Jerusalem. She was a close friend of my sister who lived in Yerushalayim. And she put the two and two together and we met. Had uh, she been a widow herself? No, no. She, she was waiting for Mr. Wright. She's actually older than me by a, a year or two. But she, she was very busy. She was teaching in Michlalah. She was teaching in, uh, at a college level. So she went on with her life. But this was her goal. And people asked, why would a woman living in Jerusalem leave Jerusalem to marry a guy with 11 children in California? I said, I don't know. She's either an angel or she's crazy. And crazy, she isn't. So by process of elimination, she's an angel. And, she, and, she, and now, 35 years later, I can attest she is definitely an angel. And uh, it was tough. Those years were tough. But we weathered it. We weathered the storm and survived and came outstanding and probably, in many ways, stronger for it.
0: How did you learn about navigating? You you mentioned that there weren't many books about grief and and theodicy or whatnot at the time, but just the notion of, of remarriage is also probably something that was not much spoken about or written about. How did you know how to navigate that? How to strike that balance between honoring the legacy of your late wife, who was the mother of those eleven children, some of whom probably didn't even remember her, certainly the sixteen-month-old twins, and having a new you know, a woman, a new wife in your life, and and building that relationship? Like that's a very complicated, emotional picture. How did you learn how to uh, how to travel that journey?
1: I wouldn't want to say trial and error, (laughs) but there was some of that also, needless to say. First of all, I know friends, I I know acquaintances who have in one form or another had the same challenge, Uh, have chosen not to remarry until the children were out of the house or married. And I can respect that approach. They probably didn't have 11 kids under the age of 14 at that point. But we consult the Shulchan Aruch. We have a code of Jewish law. And then Shulchan Aruch addresses everything. And if it's not there explicitly, you consult a rabbi and he can find it somewhere in the code of Jewish law. But this is explicit in in, in Shulchan Aruch. Uh, If a person loses a spouse, three of the major holidays have to pass. In which case, in, the, in, in, in my case, my wife passed away 10 days before Passover. Uh, that would be Passover, Shavuos, and Sukkos. Uh, I think it's translated as tabernacles. Where we, <laughs> I, I'm not sure of the English translation. It's like phylacteries, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, like phylacteries. And that was uh, Shavuos from Nissen is like six or seven months later it's in the seventh month so it from yeah yeah so the, I, I was free to remarry by and but the and if the person has many children one holiday has to pass uh but you know emotionally you have to come to terms with it i struggled with it i spoke to uh wiser people than me older and wiser people and it, it was not easy it was not an easy process <laughs> i published an article a few years ago On remarriage, and the title of the article is You Want Titles to Be Creative. The title of the article is Is There Life After Death? Meaning, Can You Remarry After You Have a Death in Your Immediate Couplehood, So To Speak? And and I do elaborate with sources and and anecdotes and stories, and uh, uh, it doesn't always work out for the people. I think we are fortunate. I would like to think that my wife and I were very immature at that time. And as difficult as it was and as stressful as it was, we managed to carry through until
0: the sea was calmer. Is there some sort of formula that you advise in terms of the balance between honoring the, the past and moving forward? Well, first... One
1: needs to, in every decision of this type, one has to go back to what value system are you working from? Is it merely respecting or disrespecting the deceased wife, or when we consult the Shulchan Aruch and says marriage is acceptable or appropriate? Let me tell you a story about this. Let me finish the idea, and then I'll tell you an anecdote that, that I'm personally familiar with. So if this is part of God's plan, then remarriage is not a conflict with the first marriage, but it's a continuation of life with a divine hiccup. But the death of a spouse is more like an earthquake than a hiccup. But after an earthquake, you rebuild. You don't just say there was an earthquake and let the house just be in shambles. No, you've got to rebuild as difficult as it is. Let me tell you a story. There was a gentleman, a giant of spirit. He lived in a wheelchair. He functioned out of a wheelchair. He was a writer in Hebrew and in English. He was a translator. At the United Nations. And at the age of 40, unfortunately, he passed away. And his wife carried on. And about a year later, she was helping a young woman navigate dating and marriage. And this woman was aff- affiliated with the Lubavitch Rebbe. So she brought her, the, the widow brought this young woman for a private audience with the Rebbe. And the young woman went in, spoke to the Rebbe, whatever they spoke about. And as she was ready to leave the Rebbe's room, uh, the Rebbe says to this young woman, is Mrs. So-and-so here outside? Did she perhaps come with you? She knew that she was involved with her matchmaking. Uh, Is she here? She said, yes, she's out in the hallway waiting for me. Would you ask her if she would be kind enough to come in? So the young woman went out, and, and she goes into the lobby and says to Mrs., I should have given her a pseudonym, but says, the Rabbi wants to see you. And, you know, going into the Rebbe was not, you know, a, a simple thing. People prepared, people focused. Out of nowhere, I, I, I'm going to go see the Rebbe right now, she, but the Rebbe's calling her, she had no choice. She went in. She's standing before the Rebbe. The rabbi said, you know, the Talmud says, he who prays for another, they are answered first. So you're helping this woman get married. And the, the Talmudic expression is, if you pray for somebody else and you need the same thing, so you actually need the same thing. You need to consider remarriage. She was stunned. She was stunned. This is what she said. That was the absolute last thing in my mind. It was a little over a year that my husband passed away. And she blurted out to the Rebbe How can I consider remarriage if the vision of my husband is in front of me? The Rebbe looked at her very sympathetically and said, Your husband in heaven is not going to be at peace until you have remarried. He wants what is good for you, and he is not at peace until you remarry. And it took a while for her to digest that. But in truth, when we think of remarriage or when we think about the first wife and the second wife, it's like... In a time when uh, polygamy was permitted, and we have the Torah reading of these weeks, Rachel and Leah, which happens to be the names of uh, the two names of my first wife, her name was Rachel Leah, they were sisters, but they were also competitors. They were competitors for the husband's favors, as it were, in Hebrew, in the Talmud, That is called a tsara. A tsara means a problem, a trouble. That's that's the name for two wives married to one husband when when it was permissible uh, in Judaism. It it was banned later, but um, it was permissible then. But if we look at it from a higher perspective... When a soul passes away, when a person passes away and their soul goes to heaven, where do they go to? Well, I'll give you uh, the the common English expression is they go to heaven. In Hebrew, there's a number of different terms used. One of those terms, which is a common term, is olam HaEmes, the world of truth. A world of truth means there's no competitiveness, there's no jealousy. All that exists is God's truth. When God takes a soul back, it is not happenstance, whether we understand it or not, whether we can digest it or not. But if we believe that this is part of God's divine plan, then in this woman's case, Her husband, who was in heaven in a world of truth, whatever he was doing there, to paraphrase the Talmudic expression, basking in the radiance of the glory of God in the Garden of Eden, that's fine for him. uh, But his uh, better half, as it were, was down here on earth grieving for him. And that is not consistent with. God's truth. God's truth is for her to go on with her life uh, after a pause, after, a, as you say, an opportunity to make a reckoning and to come to terms with it. The past never disappears, but to deal with it in a respectful and reverential and loving way, and then realize that besides yesterday, there's also going to be a tomorrow. And not only for the children, because, uh, but for the woman herself she was in her very early 40s then she did remarry she married a a, a Diane from london a judge a rabbinic judge and she lived many many happy years moved from uh, brooklyn where they lived to england she lived a whole new creative and wonderful life
0: yeah absolutely i guess it's, it's even more complicated for the children who don't want to feel like they're betraying their 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 mother and yet have to respect this new figure that comes into their lives
1: there's a big difference between the two 16 year olds who were then uh, almost three when uh, who it was very easy for them to bond uh, whereas the 14 year old who was then uh, 16 uh, obviously there could be conflicts and there were I'd say it straight, but at this point, things are moving forward. Have moved forward. All, all of the eleven children have married. They all have children of their own. Some even have grandchildren. So we weathered the storm and came up standing.
0: Now, tell me about the book. You know what the goal of the book is. Why you wrote it, and in particular, why you wrote it now. I mean, if you think about it, it's almost poetic. Uh, it was you wrote it as many years after the tragedy as you were old at that time right so you said you wrote it 36 years later and if you were 36 when she passed away there's something very i don't know poetic about that she, she was 36 mind, she i was i was 38 it, uh, uh, just to get the okay, math so the correct. poetry is, is a little yeah, bit but, compromised, no, the point we'll,
1: is, poetic license okay <laughs> okay no, no, your point your 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 question is is very well taken. Um. After my wife passed away, so I needed to, for myself, I needed to delve deeper into the Jewish philosophy and theology and understanding of grief and why these things happen to the extent that there is an answer. Uh, We also had a parent body in in the school who were not, uh, I would say at that point, the majority were not observant. They were Jewish. Caring, caring enough to send their kid to a Orthodox Jewish day school, which had a wonderful secular education program that helped. And through the children, you know, they got a little, and through their interaction with uh, the rabbis and the teachers, it had a positive influence on them. My wife had already been teaching from 1971 until 1986 many of the kids had gone through her classrooms. In fact, literally three weeks ago, I spoke to a student of the Hebrew Academy who was now, he was a tax lawyer, now retired. Actually, he lives in, in Silver, uh, they still live in Silver Springs, perhaps. Silver Springs, Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he lived most of the years there in, in, in your area. And, uh, By I was going to say by some chance encounter, but nothing is by chance. By some providential encounter, his daughter spent the Shabbat at the home of my friend, a friend of mine in Florida, and they started talking with her. You come from? Her name is Rachalea, and she mentioned, "Yes, I am named after the teacher, my father's teacher in the second grade," and. And I heard that. I said, I got to find his telephone number and call him up and thank him because I never knew that. I never knew that he named the daughter after my wife. So, so, But this parent body was shaken up. You know, everybody was shaken up. Her students were shaken up because the next day somebody had to teach the class and it wasn't their regular teacher. And they knew what had happened. Uh, the parents wanted to know, you're preaching about Judaism and it's wholesome and it's godly and it's good for you. And how does this happen to our beloved teacher? And, you know, after the school year in in July and August, I gave I gave a seven week lecture series on uh, do bad, not why bad things happen to good people, but do bad things happen to good people. And I went through a lot of the Jewish approach to all these things. And I said to myself, you know, somebody ought to write a book about this. And then a thought entered my mind, perhaps you. Perhaps I would be the one to write the book. But I was busy. As you said, I had 11 kids to raise. I had a school to run. Life is very busy. And to take off time to write a book, it didn't seem realistic. For all of those 36 years, whenever I had an idea, I jotted it down. Whenever I saw something relevant. I have two what they call banker's boxes of notes. And then a few years ago, I said, you know, at this stage in my life, if I don't deal with it now, it's never going to happen. I said, OK, I'm going to focus on it. And it took me two years of hard labor, <laughs> self-imposed hard labor. And I wrote the book and, and the feedback that I've gotten in the last two months. Uh, I know the book works. It works for people that are not grieving, but are everyone. Every human being with a little sensitivity has that question, how to believe in heaven when it hurts, like hell, why bad things happen to good people. It's built in. Life actually works that way, and we have the question, especially when a person has a tragedy. Especially when a person has a tragedy, where do you turn to? And uh, I I, I think the the book Came out from the reviews, but Amazon reader reviews. It works, and I know from personal people that went through lost a baby just two months ago. And the grandfather of the baby called me up and said that, that the, reading the book has given his son, his, do- his son and daughter-in-law so much support, which other books didn't help. So I am happy to have written the book. Uh, the feedback that I get is very positive and i thank god for the opportunity and i hope to spend the next 10-15 years promoting it
0: <laughs> how would you summarize the book if you had to in you know a couple of short sentences the premise of the book and in what ways do you think that your approach differs from those others that may be out there as you mentioned there now are you know a a variety of offerings within this genre that maybe didn't exist back in 1986
1: Number one, I worked very, very diligently, and I also thank the editors who worked with me equally diligently to make the book user-friendly, meaning that the ideas are profound, but they're presented in a way that anybody who's had a high school education could understand 95% of it in a way that it actually talks to them. So it's user friendly. It's, it reads easily, but it's not simplistic. It's very, the subject is, is a deep one. It's a profound one. The truth is that when people ask why, why do bad things happen? Why did something happen? There's a story told about Rabbi Yekosiel Halberstam, uh, the, the, the Rabbi of Kleisenberg, who himself lost a wife and 11 children in the Holocaust, and after that rebuilt and moved to Israel and recreated the dynasty. Somebody once asked him, Rabbi, don't you have questions for God? And he said, do I have questions? Sure, I have questions. And I asked God, can you give me the answers? He says, no. God says, come, come up here. I'll sit, sit with you and explain it to you. And he said, mm, considering that, mm, I'll stay here without the answers. And he stayed below and built, built, him, built his own family, built his own community, and built helped many thousands of Jews. There is no answer, and frankly, here's a problem with an answer. If you can justify tragedy, then you become inert, you become desensitized to tragedy, because it means it's perfectly rational. If there's a perfect rational reason why bad things happen to good people, so what do you do? You shrug your shoulders. You know, if you're walking in the hospital and you hear a patient crying in pain and the relatives are standing by the door and just chit-chatting and you go over to them and say, don't you hear your relative is screaming in pain? And he says, yeah, it's a maternity ward. She's having a baby. What do you want? You know, if we had that kind of an answer for tragedy, we would chit-chat and go through no. God did not want us to have answers. That's, you know, well, the story with the rabbi, if you go to heaven, I'll tell you, it's not meant to be understood by us. And as Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sack said, after a tragedy, our question is not why, that's God's business, and there's no real answer for humans that they can integrate. The question is what, what can we do? God wants us to take that challenge Why do bad things happen to good people or to bad people? But why does tragedy happen? The answer is what can we do to alleviate the suffering of that person and of that group of people, you know, to support medical research and to support Peker Holen societies that visit the sick and support the sick and the needy. That's what we are, are bound to do. And, I have to tell you uh, another little story, which is brought in the book. I have a son who is a rabbi in Atlanta, and this must have been more than ten years ago. I came to visit him. It was some kind of a event. Whether I don't think it, was, it could have it could have been a bar mitzvah. I don't know. I came to Atlanta for a few days. My son says, "Tati, father, I I, I need to speak to you privately." So we went out for an evening, and he started telling me about his first cousin, my nephew, who was then 34 years old and dying from lung cancer. He has a wife. He has four children. He's the nicest person in the world. He's a shliach in in, in Virginia. And he's ranting and going on and on. And I need to let him get it off his chest. In my mind, I was already figuring out what I'm going to tell him. And as he was winding down, and I said to myself, whatever I'm going to tell him, all my rabbinic preaching, he knows it. He's a rabbi himself. He's, he said the same thing. So why am I going to say something that he already knows? And I looked him in the eye, and I said, Eliyahu do you want an answer or do you want a hug? He looks at me stunned. And when my question sunk in, his eyes teared up and he says, Tati, I want a hug. And I gave him a hug like I haven't hugged him since he was a child. Uh, Because as adults with a mind, when we have a problem, we want to be able to put it into some frame of reference so we can come to terms with it. In this case, there is no adequate answer that will put things in place. And what the person really wants is for the pain to stop. A hug does that much better than a philosophical answer. So we need to know what we're really asking for. And we need to get the support from Ultimately, the ultimate support is realizing that God runs the world and you are not a victim of a chance fluke or anything of that sort. As difficult as it is to accept, this is part of the divine plan. And in the book, I give different backgrounds for what the divine plan might be, but it serves a divine purpose. What that divine purpose is, sometimes, years later, in retrospect, you you can have some inkling, some glimmers of insight of what something positive may have happened from that. But at the time, it's extremely difficult to figure anything out. But if you know that this is part of a divine plan, you are not a victim. You have been challenged. And now it's up to you to pick yourself up. And deal with the challenge.
0: What do you hope somebody will walk away with feeling or knowing after reading this book?
1: I'm hoping that they will develop a relationship with God. If they have had one, to refresh it. And if they haven't had one, to figure out how to create one. Because ultimately, that is the support that one needs in a time of tragedy. Little things you can figure out, but tragedy is things that overwhelm you. The only support can come from God, who is behind the scenes in charge and is with you in your suffering as well. And that may sound paradoxical. If God planned it How can he be with you? Yep. There's a lot about religion that has paradoxes, but if one can believe absolutely that God is in charge and things that happen are planned by God, yet God cares and gave us challenges. He has the bigger picture, which we don't have. And if we can tap into that trust that he has the bigger picture and he knows what he's doing, whether we, we do or not. We're little people. He is a creator. We are cre- creatures that he created. And if we can put that in perspective in a certain way, that is the biggest comfort.
0: What's very refreshing about your approach to me is that it's not a defensive posture. It's not trying to answer questions in some sort of forced manner. But it's actually, as you say, paradoxically, coming to say that the tragedy itself could be the source of strength or can be, at least can occasion, a reinforced relationship with God when we might think that it specifically would be the time of weakening that relationship and know that it could be used as as a vehicle or as a springboard for that deeper connection rather than being some kind of a defensive posture. It's really a proactive and positive message, which I think, is very beautiful. Rabbi Gershyn Schusterman, author of Why God, Why? How to Believe in Heaven When It Hurts Like Hell. We'll link to it on Amazon and wherever else I'm sure it can be purchased. But thank you so much for joining us. Because of the topic, I can't say it was my pleasure,
1: but it was my pleasure speaking to you and to your audience. Be well.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's dot N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.